Welcome back to the podcast. This is Charlotte Craven, Technical Director here at Evidence for Faith, and we are slowly but surely continuing our way through the Old Testament in our Messianic Prophecies study. Before we jump into it, we're still in February. Still want to let you know we're still accepting applications for the 2022 Marine Biology Trip. So to get more information on that and get your application in and all the information you need, you can go to evidenceforfaith.org. That's evidence, the number four, faith.org slash 2022 Marine Biology. Or you can just click on the events tab and you'll see it there. So we hope to see you on that trip. And the deadline is February 28th. So without further ado, here is Michael Lane in episode 12 of The Road to Emmaus, Messianic Prophecies of the Old Testament. Welcome to Evidence for Faith as we continue our series on the road to Emmaus, Messianic prophecies from the Old Testament, dealing with the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the Anointed One. And uh, as we're moving through this lesson, uh, we are in, at this point, the book of Psalms as we go along, and we're going to go further into Psalms. We won't finish Psalms because, as I said in the last lesson, there is a lot of messianic prophecies from the book of psalm alone so as we examine psalm uh, we are on the 39th prophecy as we're going along in here if you're taking notes i encourage you to take notes or to mark these in your bible just so you have great evidence uh, that jesus is the messiah how he fulfilled all of these and these are uh, books that were written hundreds of years before Jesus ever uh, walked on the earth in his ministry. There are some critics today who say that all these prophecies and stuff came later, came much later, after the uh, the time of Christ into the 300 to 400 AD, during the, the time of Constantine or thereafter. Um, and that's why these fit so well, is because they were written after the fact of Jesus's life and, and sort of making him look like the Messiah. Well, that is just so bogus. That is so incorrect because the Dead Sea Scrolls um, have shown and proved that these things were written hundreds of years before Jesus ever walked uh, on the uh, in the Holy Land and did his ministry. So this is evidence showing that Jesus is truly the Messiah. And as we're in the book of uh, psalm here, and we're going to be starting, like I say, this is going to be saw, um, our number 39th, the 39th prophecy, and this one is Psalm 22, and I'm entitling this The Death of the Messiah, The Death of the Messiah. Now, you might be wondering, wait a minute, you didn't mention any verses, you gave us a chapter. Yeah, that's true, because this chapter is loaded with passages. No other psalm for one, is quoted more often in the New Testament than Psalm 22. There's a trivia fact for you. If you ever go on Jeopardy and there's a question here about Messianic prophecies, which psalm, was, or this psalm was mentioned more in uh, the New Testament than any other psalm. And, of course, the, the answer is, what is Psalm 22? So if you ever go on Jeopardy, there you go, you got that one. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the entire psalm here. And as we read it, I want you to sort of just picture in your mind as you follow along, or if you're just sitting and listening to me uh, speak, I want you to just follow along and picture in your mind uh, you, are, you yourself are at the foot of Calvary. You're at the foot of the cross, observing the death of Jesus 
And this, remember, is written almost um, over a thousand years or about a thousand years before this event ever took place. This is so cool. So are you ready? Let's take a look. Psalm 22. We're going to read the whole psalm. Thus, let's begin. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you I was cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like raven, ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay in me you lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evil doers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you may help. Come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers, and in the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in great congregation, my vows I perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied, those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not himself keep himself alive. Prosperity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming uh, generation. 
They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. So that's the psalm. Though David wrote this psalm, obviously as a prayer of suffering, David did go through times of suffering. And it has a dual purpose because it's pertaining somewhat to David, but it has messianic uh, passages embedded in it that come true. God is using David's life in symbolism also in certain aspects of it to be um, prophecy for the Messiah. So it gains its full meaning when it's compared to Jesus. Now, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, David pens this the suffering song that would predict how our Savior suffered on the cross at the hands of fallen men. Now, this psalm has five distinct major prophecies concerning the Messiah. The first are going to be found in verses 1 through 21, which uh, is often called um, in theology, they call this the agony of the cross, verses 1 through 21 of this psalm. Um, just picking out a few pieces of this, we're going to take a look. Look what look what's written here in this aspect or this part of the the psalm, verses one through twenty one, on this agony of the cross. Look what's written and how it's fulfilled by Jesus. First of all, verse one: My God, why have you forsaken me? Now that should be ringing a little uh, familiar tone to you, particularly around Easter time, because this is. Um, Matthew, the writer of the Gospel, Matthew, actually takes this psalm and uses this because Jesus actually quoted it while he was on the cross. And it's recorded in Matthew chapter 27, verse 46. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So we see the first verse right there. Skip down to verse 6. We're going to see something again. Scorned by mankind and despised by the people. Okay, how is this messianic? Well, let's just take a look here for a second at Isaiah. Um, We'll come back to or get to Isaiah later on, but let's pull something out of Isaiah that might help you ring a bell and connect this. In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 3, and I'm sure some of you have already caught what I'm about to say. uh, Isaiah 53, 3 says he was despised and rejected by man. Uh, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hid their face, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. So verse 6, where it says, scorned by mankind and despised by the people, Isaiah picks up on the same thing, um, not taking it directly from David, but from the Holy Spirit. And we do see this frequently in Jesus's life, how he was despised, how he was scorned by mankind. I mean, Jesus was constantly, we can't even list all the different times here that you find in the four gospels of Jesus being scorned by mankind, despised by the people. But on the cross, he definitely was because they made fun of him on the cross. As he was hanging on the cross, people were spitting at him, um, probably uh, hurling, well, it says hurling insults at him and stuff. So he was despised on the cross. So verse 6 fulfilled. Um, Skip to the next verse, verse 7. It says this, all who see me mock me. They hurl insults. Well, here again, we we see the same thing we're just talking about. It's just a continuation. And out of Matthew, again, let's take a look in Matthew chapter 27, verses 30, uh, sorry, verses 28 through 31, We read this about Jesus being mocked and insults hurled to him. 
So Matthew 27, 28 through 31. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisted together a crown of thorns. They put it on his head. They put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him. And they took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. I mean, we, we see this so clearly in this passage. And I just move down a couple of verses, Matthew 27, verses 39 through 44. Look what we read here in the same thing. We're going to see this exact same thing take place again. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who, could, who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He can't save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. A little note here. Did you catch what the people called Jesus in that last verse, 44? Um, it's talking, um, right at the end, he says, For he said, I am the Son of God. How many critics do we have today say that Jesus never claimed to be the Son of God? Well, I have already talked about many times in, these, in this series and in other lessons that Jesus did claim to be the Son of God. Matter of fact, his favorite title, Son of Man, that he used more than anything else, is a messianic title. And by claiming to be the, uh, this messianic title, claiming this, he's claiming to be the Son of God, because the Jews knew that the Messiah would be the Son of God. And so he's constantly claiming that. Also, in the book of John, John records um, eight specific times, in particular, that Jesus claims to be I am, ego imi, which in Greek means I am, and, and that's the same name that is used in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, in Exodus chapter 3, when God, Moses asks God, what's your name? And God replies, I am that I am. And we're using the same thing. Jesus uses the exact same title. So Jesus is claiming to be God, and anybody who says, no, he never did, then why did the, when he said these things, why did the Jews pick up stones to stone him for blasphemy? They did this because that was the penalty for someone who claimed to be God um, and to be stoned. Of course, Jesus was not stoned. He had to be sacrificed on an altar with wood as a prophecy also. So he had to be sacrificed. His blood had to be shed. Besides, when you stone a person, there's not a lot of bloodshed always. Um, where crucifixion, um, I mean, he's going to be stabbed and everything. There's going to be blood. The scourging, there's going to be blood. So that sort of fits this, this whole thing also. But Jesus did claim to be the Son of God. And even his... Um, his murderers actually said the same thing. For he, It says here in Matthew 27, for he said, I am the Son of God. So it just behooves me how critics of the Bible, critics of Jesus, will say that Jesus never claimed to be the Son of God. Oh, yes, he did. I mean, how blind, unfortunately, how blind people are that they just don't see this and they don't read this. I mean, if he hadn't, then why would they have said this? But Jesus was constantly using messianic titles for himself. And they sort of skip that. Look at verse, moving on here. Look at verse 15 of Psalm 22. It says, my tongue sticks to my jaws. 
Now, we're going to see that fulfilled again in John 8, uh, chapter 19, verses 28 and 29. John, an eyewitness to the crucifixion, actually writes this. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. A jar of sour wine stood there. They put the sponge um, full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. Here, we're seeing again an amazing thing, a, a prophecy coming true. My tongue sticks to my jaws, he says. Actually, if you read physiologically what happens to a person who is crucified Roman style, they do suffer, particularly after the scourging and stuff, they're going to suffer extreme dehydration. And in Jesus' case, he had, as Luke, Dr. Luke records, Jesus' sweat turned to blood, a medical condition called hematridosis occurring under great stress. And that too uh, leads to dehydration. Um, Jesus was dehydrated. And as you are being crucified, yes, you are dehydrated. Your tongue literally sticks to the roof of your mouth. But I, I love how John uh, talks about the hyssop branch. And we've mentioned this before, that hyssop was having to do with cleansing, spiritual cleansing. It goes back to the Passover, Jesus, the first Passover in Egypt. And Jesus, uh, um, as, as he's being crucified, we see the hyssop branch being used here again for this Passover. How cool is this? But that sort of fits. Let's look at the next one. Um, verse 18 of this psalm, it says, They divide my garments among them, and my clothing they cast lots. Now, remember, this is written a thousand years before the event ever took place. Um, when And John records this event. Again, he's an eyewitness. He's there watching the thing. And he records this and pulls out this prophecy because this, and he writes about this because it's the fulfillment of this. And so in John chapter 19, verses 23 and 24, we read, When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Case closed. I mean, this is so simplistic. Look at the next one. Let's go down a couple more verses. Verse 22 of this psalm. It says, and we read, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. Now, to see this one, we have to go to the writer of the book of Hebrews, whoever he was. Um, the writer of the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, verses 11 through 12. And we read, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers, and in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. The writer of Hebrews actually quotes verse 22 out of this psalm and refers to this in reference to Jesus fulfilling this prophecy. How cool is this? Uh, let's skip a few more verses. Let's go down to verse 29. And also, I'm going to look um, at part of 31 at the same time. In verse 29, we read, Before him shall bow all. And you skip down a little bit to verse 31. It says, They will come and proclaim his righteousness. Now, we see this fulfilled also. Um, 
that will actually happen. This is an event that hasn't happened yet. Um, in Philippians chapter 2, verse 10, Paul, writing to the Philippians, he says this, So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. So this is part of a prophecy that you find in this psalm that has not been totally fulfilled yet because we're waiting for Jesus to return to fulfill. There are certain prophecies dealing with the future, and this is one of them. But I just find it so amazing how accurate David's description in writing this suffering song, how many aspects of it predict the death of the Messiah, and it did so perfectly. So with that, let's go to another uh, number 40, as we're going through these things, and our 40th prophecy that we come across in this lesson is going to be Psalm chapter 40, 40th Psalm, 40th major prophecy. But we're going to look specifically at verses 6, 7, and 8 in this one. So um, the number 40 prophecy, Psalm 40, 6 through 8, and I'm entitling this one, if you're taking notes on this, The Will of of the Father, the will of the Father. So to take a look at this, Psalm 40, 6 through 8 is quoted again by the author of the book of Hebrews, whoever it was. I know a lot of people say it was Paul. There were some early church writers, uh, church fathers who said it was Paul, but not everybody agrees. The writing style, the Greek writing style in the book of Hebrews is so different than what you normally see in Paul's epistles and stuff. Uh, so no one, uh, we, we don't know for certain. Whoever it was, God was saying, it's not that important that you know who it was. Know the content of it. That's what's important. So it's foolish to get into arguments about who wrote it. But the thing is, the author of the book of Hebrews um, in chapter 10, verses 5, 6, and 7, he quotes this passage. And uh, the author goes on then to describe how this passage fits the Messianic prophecies. But let's, let's read Psalm 40, 6, 7, and 8. Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I desire to do your will, O my God, your law is within my heart. Okay, now this, as many of these sometimes sound confusing until you break it down and you start looking for like the who, what, when, where, whys, and hows of things and checking into the New Testament to see if these, um, these passages actually were used by the authors of the, the New Covenant, the New Testament. And as we are going to take a look, let's look at first of all, verse 6. It said, Sacrifice and offerings you have not desired. Now this verse is speaking of the wishes of the Father. As Jesus told us, the Father does not wish sacrifices and offerings as much as are coming to him in faith and love. We, we read that in Mark chapter 12, verse 33, which reads, And to love him with all our heart and with all of our understanding and with all of our strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all the burnt, a whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Um, there are times in the Old Testament, in the minor prophets in particular, that talk about that God um, is not that interested in the sacrifices. He's much more uh, interested in the heart of people and the behavior of the people. That's what he's into. Uh, one example is Amos chapter 5, verses 21 through 23. God says, I'm not accepting your sacrifices. You guys are living as hypocrites. I'm not going to accept your sacrifices. I'm not accepting your feasts, uh, your offerings and stuff, because your hearts are, are not in it. 
I don't want anything. Other passages talk about that they were offering really poor and ill animals to God as a sacrifice. Hey, God says, I'm not interested in that. You guys are missing the whole point. It's not the action of you doing something. You're not saved by works. I want a relationship with you. I want you to follow me. And that's what he's after here. So another aspect of this verse deals with something that scholars also can't seem to agree on. There was a part in this psalm that some people just, they, they just, many commentaries you might read, they'll have different opinions on this. And it has to do with the phrase in, in this psalm, you have given me an open ear. Now, this seems to mean that the person's ears are open, able to hear. That's true, and that's how many commentaries place it. But in some translations even, like, uh, for instance, in the NIV, it's written, but my ears you have pierced. So what is actually talked about here? Now, I could tell you right now for certain, Jesus didn't go around with earrings and with pierced ears and stuff and stopping off at Claire's or something at some strip mall to get his ears pierced and put in new new uh, dangly things on his ears. That was not what he did. No, they didn't do that. So it's not talking about that. Um, so if he didn't have his ears pierced, what's this talking about? To understand it, what I think you have to do is go back to the old are the ancient customs of the time period. And ear piercing was sometimes done, not as a cosmetic uh, event like we have today. People wear earrings and, and stuff like this um, to make themselves up, uh, to be more attractive or whatever. But in ancient times, ear piercing was associated with being dedicated to someone. What do I mean by that? For instance, slaves would often be dedicated to their master, and it was often done, they would take an awl, and they would poke a hole in their ear. Uh, and this meant that they were a slave to their master. They were dedicated to this person. And it was a custom that you see in ancient times, not just in, in, in um, Judea, the, the Holy Land there, but it was a custom in the ancient world. Um, in this aspect, we what this is talking about, that um, from the psalmist's point of view, is that the Messiah would be dedicated to the Father. So in this way, looking at it that way, this um, the ear piercing talking about being dedicated to, this seems to fit. And some commentaries I've got, um, I've read and things, they've, they've, this is what they actually, um, they say that this means. It definitely is not meaning that Jesus was wearing diamond earrings or gold earrings and stuff. No, it, it fits. This passage fits with Jesus being dedicated to the Father. And how many times do we see, particularly in the book of John, how many times does Jesus refer to his father and doing his father's will? He's dedicated to the father's choice on things. And so that's what I believe this is actually speaking about. In verse 7, it says this, Behold, I have come. Now, this may sound like the Messiah is actually proclaiming his arrival into the world. Um in the scroll of the book, it is written of me. Hmm. This sounds very similar, that it's uh, like a, a prophecy. Um, it sounds like a lot about a prophecy itself. It but if you look at all of the Old Testament prophecies uh, we've come up to at this point, starting in Genesis all the way through, it would seem that this verse, speaking as it's a prophetic verse for the Messiah, that this verse is saying that scriptures would prophesize the coming of the Messiah. 
In other words, this is actually, I believe, talking about that the Messiah is coming. I think it's that simple. I believe that this verse is talking about the Messiah is coming. And we see this with every single prophecy, because why are these prophecies? Just going back into the, what the Bible talks about. In chapters 1 and chapter 2 of Genesis, God creates the perfect world, the perfect environment. There's no death, there's no illness, there's no mutations, there's no flaws, there's no anger, there's no tears, etc., etc. Chapter 3 of Genesis, Genesis comes along, man chooses poorly and we bring death, destruction, mayhem, rape, murder, famine, um, desolation, depression, cancer. We bring all of this into the world. And God constantly from this point on is telling us, I'm going to fix the plan with um, I have a plan, and a person will be born, a man will be born of a woman who will fix this. Talk, of course, about the Messiah, Jesus. And then you have all these things, these prophecies we've been doing saying the Messiah is coming. The Messiah is coming. The Messiah is coming. And each one of the prophecies talks about this. We talked about with the Old Testament uh, offerings, the Old Testament um, and the, the covenant having to do with the feast. They're all pointing to the, the Messiah coming. I mean, that's what prophecies are. They're talking about the Messiah coming. And I believe that's simply what this is talking about here. In verse 8, it says, I desire to do your will, O my God. Well, again, we're going to see this quoted, that verse right there quoted by the writer of the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, it comes right out because the author of the book of Hebrews writes, Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He abolishes the first in order to establish the second. And by that we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. So we see the author of Hebrews actually uses that exact phrase out of this psalm. But not only that, here's an extra piece to it. In John, John's Gospel, chapter 4, verse 34, Jesus says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. We have basically the same thing being said here, what you see in that psalm, John is using also. And so in light of this, we can see that this psalm does in fact deal with the Messiah, who is coming, who is Jesus, and how he fulfills this. So that's um, number 40. And let's go to uh, the next one here, very quickly here. Um, number 41 of the Messianic prophecies, major Messianic prophecy 41, is Psalm 41. And it's one verse, verse 9. I want to focus on verse 9. And it reads, Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Now, again, this is a psalm that has dual meaning. It, uh, it was first meaning um, and pertaining to David and David's response to some of his advisors and close friends turning against him uh, and betraying him. But it has a dual meaning because it's also messianic. How do we know it's messianic? It's because we see it fulfilled in the New Testament and this is actually quoted. So we know that Judas Iscariot was the betrayer. I mean, we get that. He was a close friend of Jesus. He was actually, and most people don't quite catch this, but Judas Iscariot was one of the leaders of the 12 disciples. Yes, one of the leaders. Now, some have actually, when I have said this in the past, they're like, where in the world do you get that? Well, it's really simple because he is told, uh, we are told in the Gospels that he uh, held the money bag. 
Who holds the money bag? Somebody important. You don't give it to somebody who's not important. I remember back in school, um, in middle school and in high school, we had class officers. We'd had a, a president, a vice president. We had a secretary who took notes in their meetings. And we had a sec- uh, we had a treasurer. Actually, um, one year I actually ran and was the, the class treasurer. And um, thus, I had a position of power. In organizations, some people, the person who holds the money bag has the power. And so it's an important position. And Judas was the one who handled the money bag. John tells us that many times he was dipping into it without us knowing it. And not until all this came afterwards and uh, after the crucifixion, after Judas commits suicide and everything, then the Holy Spirit enlightens them and they get to see everything uh, for what it was. That Judas was the betrayer. That Judas was the one that um, was a false friend to Jesus. He, he appeared to be a close friend. Um, he shared bread. He, he traveled with, the, with Jesus the Messiah, his master. Matter of fact, he helped perform miracles when Jesus fed the 5,000. If you recall, he breaks the small little like Happy Meal, puts it in baskets, and the disciples take it out and distribute it. And while it's being distributed, it keeps multiplying. So Judas is actually participating in this, this miracle. He's in the boat when there's the storm at sea. And when the storm at sea occurs and uh, Jesus calms it, it says the disciples worshipped him. Um, but the thing is, Judas was a false believer. He was a false believer. Um, and he was there with Jesus, but he plotted his death. He, he plotted betrayal and stuff like this. And so he is the betrayer. Judas, in short, was a false believer. And believe it or not, we have those in our churches and youth groups and things even today. We have these people. And Judas, I mean, look at it and compared to what we have today. Judas knew the right answers. He knew what to say. He appeared, even, he, he so fooled everybody of the disciples that even at the Last Supper when Jesus says, one of you will betray me, and they're all asking, is it me, is it me, is it me? You notice no one in the room says, it's Judas. As a matter of fact, when Judas, when Jesus, when they asked Jesus, you know, who is it? And Jesus says, it's the one I hand this parcel of food, and he hands it to Judas. Even then, they didn't catch it. They didn't catch it because Judas was one of the leaders. Surely it can't be him. And when Judas then leaves, what is what are this, um, they tell us and the writers, they say, we just assumed he went out to give money to the poor or to pay for the meal. They never caught that he was the betrayer. And that is what is so sad because Satan, he puts people like this in our churches. He puts people like this in our youth groups. People who seem to know the right answers, they fake people out by their walks, but deep down inside, they are not true followers. They don't have uh, the pistuo type of faith, a faith that is to put your trust and commitment to, and which is what John uses all the time as he says the word believe, to believe. Judas had head knowledge. He, he saw things. He, he knew things. But the thing is, he never put his trust and never committed his life to Christ, which is what pishtuo means. And in John 3, 16, that's what Jesus is asking of us. Have you put your trust in me? Have you committed your life to me? That's what Jesus wants. That's what God wants of all of us. But there's so many people can quote verses can can they'll go out they'll teach Sunday school classes they go on missions trips they do all sorts of things like this some are possibly even pastors and churches and the thing is they are not walking with God they are false believers and we see this and John talking about this passage here John 
um, actually uses this in the prophecy in John chapter 13, verses 18 and 19. He says, I'm not speaking, this is Jesus speaking, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. He who ate my bread and lifted his heel against me. Right there. Just stop there for a second. What's Jesus doing? He's quoting this passage. And he says, I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Jesus, this is so cool. Jesus actually quotes himself among his, his disciples. He quotes this prophecy having to do with um, the betrayal. He quotes it right out of Psalms. And then he tells the people, I'm telling you this because when it happens, you will believe in me. Because the disciples still didn't quite understand, even at the Last Supper, they weren't quite catching everything, but they do afterwards. Well, that is a fascinating thing, and um, I, I just invite you right now, as we just are going to close out this lesson, have you committed your life to Christ? Do you really know him, or is it just a bunch of facts? You know the historical Jesus, and you believe the historical facts. That doesn't make you a Christian, because that's not Pishtuo faith, which is what the Bible uh, actually says, to put your trust in. That's what Pishtuo means. It's a hard word to translate into English. It sort of means to trust in and to commit to. And it's not knowing, having a bunch of head knowledge, knowing a bunch of facts. And as I've, if you've listened to my biography on our website, I... I was one of these for a long time. I was just like a Judas, where I knew all the right things. I could quote Bible verses by the hundreds to people. Um, I was always in church. I helped out sometimes in, in teaching some things, even in, in, um, when I was still in middle school, helping out with like VBS and stuff. Um, I went to Awanas. I did all these kind of things. The thing is, I wasn't a Christian because I'd never put my trust and I never put my commitment to Jesus. I knew all the facts, and I could quote things. And I'll tell you, my life showed that. Though I tried to hide it well, it showed that. And then, in eighth grade, I became a Christian. I realized I just have the head facts. I'm, a, I'm like a Judas. Instead, I sat in a chair when I was hearing Billy Graham talk about this at the McCormick Place in Chicago, the difference here uh, of what true faith was. And I realized, boy, that's, that's me. I'm a false Christian. I wasn't even a Christian. I was literally a Judas. But sitting in that chair that night, I said, Lord, I do trust you as my Savior, and I'm committing my life to you. And then the Holy Spirit, I know, was put inside of me because even my brother, within the next 24 hours, noticed major changes in me. And it was changes that I wasn't really trying to do. God just put his Spirit inside of me and started cleaning house. See, a lot of people get confused. They think you got to clean your life up before you become a Christian. That's like, if you're going to take your car to the car wash, you don't go out in the yard, first of all, scrub it all clean, and then take it to the car wash. No, you take the dirty car to the car wash and let, let the car wash do it. So in, what I'm trying to say is, you don't try and clean up your act on your own. You let the, pers or the, the personality do it. You let God do it. He cleans you up. You don't have to do it. He'll clean you. And when he puts his Holy Spirit inside of you, I'm telling you, you're not going to be the same. As Paul tells us numerous times, you become a new creation. That's what we're talking about here. Well, 
We're done in our lesson here today. I hope you have enjoyed this. And as we follow along, we're still in the book of Psalm for a while, but um, we've had uh, a couple here that we finished and I hope you're enjoying this series. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, you can go to our webpage there and talk to us um, or you can always email uh, to us or whatever, but we would love to hear from you. And if you are ever interested in, in having uh, uh, evidence for faith come to your church or to a school group or or whatever to work uh, to present a science thing dealing with um, the scriptures and, and God or historical things like archaeology or just to have me come and uh, uh, do some expository preaching to your group. I am so open to do this and um, you can check the calendar aspect. You can see we got, we're pretty booked up right now, but um, we have, I, I would love to do this and it doesn't matter. We don't charge a lot. All we ask for is you cover our expenses for getting there, uh, meal, gas, whatever it is. Um, you cover those expenses. We do not charge a fee. I am not going to charge someone to hear the word of God. Um, that's why we have people who come on, have joined our ministry to help support us. So we don't have to charge for putting out the gospel. The gospel comes to us as a free gift from God. I will not, I will not charge people to hear the Word of God. You just cover the expenses. Just get me there and I'll be happy to, to do it. I mean, if you want to give a love offering, you want to give an honorarium, that is fine. We'll, we'll definitely take it because we have expenses. We have salaries to pay and stuff. We have equipment we have to buy and replace at times. So yes, we have paper, we have printers and stuff that we have to, to buy things for to, to make booklets and, and lessons and stuff. So yes, we'll, we'll take something, but I don't demand it. I just want to get the Word of God out there. That's our purpose. So if you've never, if you have been like I was until I became uh, a Christian in eighth grade, maybe you've been sitting here listening to all these lessons, or maybe you've never heard this before, that um, there are false Christians that are out there and they, they fake a lot of people out. If you've been one that you've never put your trust and your commitment to Jesus Christ, I ask you right now, please do that. It's so simple. You just sit down and talk to God about it. And Thank you so much for joining us. I hope you have a, a great day and join us again for another lesson on our road to Emmaus, the Messianic prophecies of the Messiah. So until we meet again, take care and may God bless. I hope you enjoyed that episode. A big thank you is due to our donors for making this ministry possible. Once again, you can become a donor at evidenceforfaith.org slash give. That's evidence, the number four, faith.org slash give. And help us keep this broadcast free. You can also support us by sharing, subscribing, and leaving a review on this podcast. If you would like to hear Michael live, you can also check out our bookings calendar at evidenceforfaith.org or book your own event with Michael. So this is Charlotte signing off. I'll see you on the next episode.